This is episode Echo of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, April 26, 2011. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. Uh, yeah, so uh, my voice still isn't right. Yeah, you've uh, you've had rhinovirus. I don't know, there was a tag, right? That yeah, well, were... that's what it's called. I, I decided to stop calling things cold and common cold because it's a pointless overload of words. But rhinovirus makes me think of like rhinoceroses. Well, well, Rhinoceri? Well, they get human virus. <laughs> But uh, but it wasn't just that. <laughs> I don't even know where to go from there. <laughs> but it, it wasn't just that. I got sicker because I didn't because I was at the collaboration summit and well, I was you were at sick. other conferences too, right? Selenium conference before that, then the collaboration summit, and I was sick the whole time, and well, I didn't take care of anything. I just took lots of Theraflu constantly. Yeah. Well, luckily, um, we have other another recording already done for this week's episode. Well, that was from the collaboration summit. So last last episode that we um, we had, it was a speech that I gave about NDAs and employment agreements, and um, I think I actually uh, no, Fon Richard Fontana actually followed me. So you're basically you listeners are actually experiencing um, the the afternoon track or a, a significant chunk of the afternoon track from the um, the legal portion of the collaboration summit. I can't talk today. Yeah, but it's not in order. <laughs> You're, you're not, giving the impression it's in order. Oh, it's was, not but did order. Fontana not follow me? I thought he did after but a break. It's none of it's in order. But none of it's in order. Which is fine. It we're is fine. Picking them, we're picking them by level of interest and clearance from the speakers. That is correct. And it was easiest to get clearance from you first to uh, allow for CC by SA broadcasting of it. That's right. We recorded the introduction right at the very end of the of the conference day. So we were still in the conference room and there were all kinds of conversations of interest happening around us. Right. And we didn't, uh, while I basically, we had the idea pretty quickly right before the track to record them all. So I just set up and told all the speakers I'd talk to them later and throw away the recordings if they had a problem with it and all that sort of thing. So we're still actually getting agreement and making sure the speakers want things published. And Richard Fontana did agree to, uh, to this morning. And we apologize for the buzz, because in order to record for so long, we had to keep the laptop plugged in for some of the time. Yeah, but I, I think if, if people heard last week that the, almost your entire uh, talk last week had that in there, and mm -hmm. it came out fine. Oh, okay, good. So, Because uh, uh, Producer Dan did a lot of work to get rid of it. Yay, and, Producer Dan. And he says he can't get rid of all of it, which right. is true, but I, I when I listened to last years. week's... It seemed okay. Last week seemed okay, and and it wasn't plugged in the whole time during Richard Fontana's talk, so only some of it had that anyway. Well, shall we let Richard Fontana speak for himself? I suppose that's true. Uh, so uh, so you'll hear Richard Fontana's talk, and then we'll come back. and I took some notes uh, from his talk, uh, and since we have time this time, which we didn't last time because we were away, we'll have a very brief discussion. Okay. Well. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So uh, you'll be hearing this a lot for, uh, as I introduce people because, uh, frankly, when they asked me to chair the track, I just started bugging all my friends on IRC until they submit talks um, and or email. And so Richard is a friend of mine who uh, I worked with as a co-worker at the Software Freedom Law Center, but now he is uh, at uh, Red Hat uh, as open source 
Licensing and Patent Council, as the slide says. You didn't have to say that. I know, but I don't mind. He thinks I won't. Well, I was worried. He, well, he's, he likes free software. Too. And you are the purveyor of the disturbing group on Identica. That's correct. And, uh, that's correct. and you are, I presume, going to give us a non-disturbing talk. Uh, that's not correct. <laughs> um, actually, just to. I have to expand on that bio, um, and it'll be clear from one slide why. When I was at SFLC, when I worked with Bradley, when he was there, and when Karen is there, and she's still there, my well, I mainly worked on the drafting of GPL version 3 with Evan Moglin for the FSF. Uh, so that I have to explain that to kind of explain something I say later on. Um, oops. So... Um, yeah, first, you know, same disclaimer as as my colleague Matthew Garrett. You know, this is this is not uh, this is not a Red Hat talk. This is not an SFLC talk. This is just uh, you know my own personal uh, views and opinions. Uh, and in fact, this this um, this talk is probably going to be confusing and and it is disturbing. It will be disturbing. Um, it may make no sense and it may be completely incorrect. Um, it probably, will, some things I say will probably strike people as being incorrect. So, you know, just be warned. And also, this is supposed to be the legal track, or uh, Bradley is talking about as the licensing track. It has really very little to do with uh, legal issues in a direct way, although I think it, in an indirect way it, it does, and in a kind of uh, expansive way it does. Uh, so, you know, what, what better way to, to uh, start a talk than with an anecdote involving Bradley and a talk from Bradley? Uh, so, back when I was at SFLC, uh, one one day I asked Bradley, "Why are we using Ubuntu and not Debian?" And uh, and this was not a uh, I would not consider this a private like secret conversation because you mentioned this in a talk actually you gave later on, and I forget what what your answer was, but um, a couple of years later, you had a blog post where you you uh, announced that you were leaving Ubuntu. Uh, SFLC was an Ubuntu shop. You're leaving Ubuntu and going back to Debian. And you talked a lot about the whole history of the various distributions you had used. You had um, you started out on Slackware, but that was too painful. SLS. SLS, right, right. So yeah, you go you back pretty you know much further than I do. Uh, Slackware was pretty painful. I guess you would consider Slackware kind of a community distribution. Yeah, uh, I have no idea. Um, the, um, you used Red Hat for a while, but you got increasingly disturbed by what you what you saw as um, Red Hat's product, Red Hat's very popular Linux product at the time, as increasingly serving Red Hat's commercial interests. Is that kind of accurate? Yes, which is not right. Okay, so so I mean, Red Hat's product today is is different from what it was then. But let's leave that aside. Uh, and then so you went to Debian. Which was kind of a, you know, the kind of the paragon of a pure community distribution for, uh, Linux or GNU slash Linux, you would say. And, um, and you went to Ubuntu for reasons I don't understand, but you explained them in, in the blog post. And, uh, but then you, you, uh, objected to certain developments in, uh, uh, at Canonical and Ubuntu and, uh, maybe sort of similar to the objections you had had in some respects to, um, Red Hat in the 1990s. And uh, so you went. It's interesting that you say in, the, in this quote that you um, you. This almost implies that you felt you had two main choices if you were going to leave Ubuntu. That you had you could go back to Debian or you could go to Fedora. And though Fedora was more software freedom friendly than uh, Ubuntu was, 
uh, it was still, in your view, a corporate-controlled distribution, although dabbling in community orientation. So you very happily uh, went back to Debian and now see that uh, Karen has done the same thing. So I guess SLC is no longer an Ubuntu shop, uh, and I have no views on that. But anyway, that's just uh, that's just to kind of uh, I use Fedora now. Uh, that's that's <laughs> that I actually never liked Ubuntu that much. That that um, which is actually why I asked Bradley that question. Uh, but but because I thought we were, if we were like elite geeks at SLC, why are we using Ubuntu? Um, but this is just to kind of introduce the topic. So. Um, my view at the time my view at the time was that Ubuntu was for like newbies. And uh, I, I wanted to think of myself as like someone who was a non-newbie, you know, which is probably stupid, but but I don't know why. I, I don't know if that was why I asked Bradley that question. Uh, so what I really want to talk about is the connection between commercial interests and free software. And I think it's an interesting topic that uh, lies behind what Bradley was writing about and talking about in that quote. And uh, in some ways, you don't really talk about it as much as we should, or we only talk, focus on kind of narrow aspects of it. And I'm not sure how interesting an idea it is, but I think some aspects of, of it are kind of interesting. Uh, so that's what I'm going to sort of try to explore. Uh, I always, you know, I think a lot about the history of free software. As, as Bradley pointed out this morning, I'm kind of this amateur historian of like the GPL and free software, and I still don't know very much about that history. but. Um, you know, one thing I do know is that the the roots of free software predate uh, free software licenses by you know many decades or several decades. Uh, they really go back to the to the beginnings of computing, and uh, there were there there were code sharing commons of a sort that took place that 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 existed long before it uh, there was proprietary software, proprietary software industry, or or free software licensing system. Um, and this this commons was a, what I would call a commercial, which is not a real wor word, but it, but what I mean by that is that no one ever really thought that you could kind of have any kind of commercial business model out of this software. I mean, I suppose it probably would have been possible. Uh, it was non-proprietary uh, in the true sense of the term. Proprietary means pro having you know being affected with property rights. This was non-proprietary code because everybody assumed that there was no reliable way to map um, existing property laws onto software. Although gradually that was changing, uh, it took like a couple of decades for that to change, or maybe more than that. When you think of patents. Uh, so I think there was this 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 major crisis that took place in the 1980s. Um, you know, you had this this public domain culture, this uh, hackers sharing public domain code, or what they called public domain code, and um, suddenly you know it, it becomes clear that software is copyrightable and this, a, it becomes viable for other reasons for there to be a proprietary software industry. So this causes this um, uh, whole kind of sea change in the way um, uh, programmers think about software, uh, and particularly public domain software. And, and there are various reactions to it. One, one was one of enthusiasm, that now programmers can make a lot of money. So there were you know entrepreneurs who came out of what was originally this kind of proto-free software movement who now uh, got into proprietary software. Uh, there was also this view that public domain software continued to play an important role in what I would call loosely like standardization. So you could, you could public domain collaborative efforts across companies and universities could be used as a basis for um, improving technology that would what was understood to be proprietary ultimately. So this is kind of I think the forerunner to the whole permissive uh, licensing tradition that we see 
in uh, free software and open source today. Uh, there were some programmers who felt that the response to this was that, to have an anti-commercial comment. So there were uh, programmers started to have uh, simple licenses that said, you know, free for non-commercial use only, kind of like today's Creative Commons um, non-commercial licenses. Uh, the first version of the Linux kernel uh, was actually under such a license. Uh, and then, uh, but an interesting development took place uh, when Richard Stallman in 1985 wrote a document called the GNU Manifesto, where he, one of the main points he makes in this document, uh, which sort of starts out seeming like a very political document, is that uh, his idea is that public domain, software should stay public domain. I, he wasn't using that term anymore. But his idea of copyleft was already kind of well developed. And the, copy, the idea of copyleft was software stays in the public domain forever. Uh, that's the goal of copyleft and the GPL, which he was sort of working on proto prototype versions of. Uh, but much of the GNU manifesto is about how um, this kind of software is completely consistent with various sorts of business models. Uh, or what we would call business models today. Uh, so, you know, fast forwarding to today, we, we have uh, we have a situation where there's lots of um, free software and open source projects that have uh, various sorts of commercial uh, relationships to them. In many cases, not in all cases, uh, these are all projects that, that continue this tradition of a commerciality, as I call it, which is that they kind of operate in a way that that is sort of at the at the developer level, at the upstream level, uh, everything is is non-commercial in nature or, or seems that way. You know, you don't have to pay money to get access to a project source code if it's a if it's a kind of a standard community project. Uh, it's all free of charge. Uh, people can participate without having to pay a fee. Uh, this is generally the case. This is this is what's sort of expected. So there's still that that tradition of a commercialness. Um, there's a lot of variability in the degree to which there are commercial interests to these projects. However, sometimes there are none at all. That's probably true of most, um, numerically most projects. Uh, there are um, many projects that um, receive donations from corporations. Sometimes they speak of sponsors. Uh, I find it interesting that the term sponsor is used quite a bit by projects. Uh, many uh, projects, uh, many corporations will hire developers primarily to work on a particular project. Uh, and then, you know, so there's a whole range. Sometimes uh, a, a corporation will actually control some of the, or all of the intellectual property. Uh, that is the pa uh, copyright, pat let's leave patents aside, because that's kind of a, a strange case. But, but, but certainly copyrights and um, trademarks associated with the project. Uh, a company may control the infrastructure uh, for the project. Uh, and then there are some, you know, even more extreme cases where really the governance of the project, another word I hate, like business model, but sort of used a lot these days, the governance of the project is either um, de facto controlled by a particular company, a single company, or maybe sometimes a group of companies, or it is uh, in effect, uh, you know, de uh, or it is actually kind of explicitly sort of part of the rules of governance that that one or more companies is sort of in a sense in control of governance decisions for the project. So there's 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 a large variability there uh, also in the degree to which these kinds of commercial relationships are uh, transparent, uh, at least in my opinion. I, I think there's there's you know, sometimes easier to see these uh, relationships than uh, than in other cases, uh, and it's interesting that sometimes it's not really talked about directly. I, I uh, that's that's my impression at least that that there's a sort of discomfort sometimes in 
projects kind of openly talking about the the um, connections that particular commercial entities have to them. When I say projects, I mean the developers who are kind of active in these projects. Um, so I don't know if this is an interesting issue in general. Uh, you know, if you, I like to think about uh, free software as being sort of like art, and we don't consider it generally problematic for a corporation to commission uh, someone to write a, a symphony or to paint a painting. Uh, it becomes a little bit more interesting if, um, you know, so if Steve Ballmer commissions uh, someone to paint a portrait of his picture and, you know, it's a very flattering portrait, like kind of a unrealistically flattering portrait, you might say, well, you know, there's a certain amount of um, corruption going on there that the, that the, um, the painter sort of, you know, wanted it to be kind of like, I'm sort of assuming that here that Steve Ballmer, like an accurate portrayal of Steve Ballmer would not be attractive, which is like a value judgment. So, so I, I, I just work with me there. So, so, or you can imagine, you know, commissioning an opera about, um, you know, uh, Larry Ellison's life and, you know, uh, you know, the opera composer would, would, would write something, would compose something that was very positive about Larry Ellison rather than something that's very negative. And, and, and I mean, this is not, this is not like that that interesting, but it's it's something that in other domains, uh, you know, you might think about. Uh, of course, there are there are cases where uh, a project's work has a direct connection to a corporation in the sense that the a, a corporation will have a commercial interest in the work of the project, uh, and the, the corporation will be involved in some very very kind of uh, interesting way in uh, funding the project or or helping out the project in some kind of financial way. And, um, you know, th th this, this calls to my mind, you know, th th there are other areas of life where we expect there to be transparency and disclosure about um, commercial connections to activities that aren't obviously commercial in nature in and of themselves. And, and, I, and you know, an example is, you know, j journalists, um, so, so if, if, if NBC does a, uh, a news story about some something controversial about GE. GE is a parent company of NBC. And I think as a matter of, of journalistic ethics, I don't think it's a, it's a legal requirement. Uh, NBC can be expected to say GE is the parent corporation of this network. Uh, and, and with politicians, you know, we have um, in the United States these campaign finance regulations that are sort of oriented to mainly towards this issue of disclosure. Disclose where you're raising your money from. Uh, so the public has a need to know what is shaping, what is going to be shaping your policy positions and so forth. I don't know if that's really relevant to free software at all. Um, I think it might be, but if, if it is, it's, it's, um, it assumes, you know, either there's some kind of, you know, transparency that isn't being met, there's, there's some sort of transparency uh, expectation, or that there's some kind of conflict of interest that, that exists or can exist when you have a, uh, a project that is influenced by a, a particular um, commercial entity. So the, the issue of um, transparency, uh, the thing is, that, you know, these commercial connections usually are not very hidden. Uh, they're, what I would say is that they tend to be most um, obvious to those who are inside the project. There's a, there's a kind of, um, to those who are outsiders, these connections are not obvious. And so there's, sometimes there's a tendency to, to make more of these connections then is actually justified. Um, the, the example that 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 comes to mind is, you know, I think of IBM and its relationship, his, historical relationship to the Apache Foundation and also to to the Eclipse Foundation. The, the IBM had this very 
you know, IBM basically spun off Eclipse as a project and then as a foundation. And actually, it created the foundation to explicitly to sort of limit its control over Eclipse. Uh, but, but you know, I, I assume that IBM still has some uh, uh, very active involvement in Eclipse, and I don't know what that is because I'm not an insider to that project. Uh, in the case of the Apache Foundation, I encounter lots of people who, who have said over the years, uh, the Apache Foundation is just a front for IBM. And I think that that is not true. But there's, but there's the fact that the, there is this perception that there may be some historical basis for why that perception exists is, I think, interesting. And, and um, you know, maybe if, if maybe projects should be, um, uh, in some cases, should be addressing that. And, and maybe there's information that that is not being disclosed to people who are sort of outsiders to the project that should be disclosed. I don't, I don't really have an, an answer to that. Um, there's some um, tendency, I think, sort of. Um, complicates this problem. There's some tendency for projects to both exaggerate their connections to particular commercial entities and to downplay them. Sometimes it's sort of, uh, you know, it, it's obvious why they might want to, it's sort of obvious why they might want to downplay them. You don't want to seem like you're you're just controlled by a particular commercial entity. On the other hand, you may have a reason to, to, um, to, to exaggerate the degree of your uh, dependence on a particular, uh, or relationship to a particular, particular um, corporate sponsor in a way that might make um, uh, outsiders to the project draw the wrong conclusions. Uh, so I think ultimately, you know, th there's no big problem of transparency about commercial interests, but it requires the person who's interested in that topic to do a certain amount of research, and that may be uh, difficult. Uh, what about the issue of conflicts of interest? So this is, again, I'm not sure this is really a big, a big deal, uh, unless you suppose that projects have some kind of duty to the public interest that could conflict with um, uh, some influence they are that is sort of uh, 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 being placed on them by some significant commercial entity. So um, this is not, I don't think this is a widely held idea. There's really no legal basis for it in general. Uh, but it's not a crazy idea that, that a project may have some kind of ethical responsibility to represent the interests of its larger um, user community, uh, maybe that's larger kind of license using community. I, I don't, I don't think very many people have have talked about this, uh, but I think it's not an entirely crazy idea. Actually, uh, so in the context of um, uh, uh, formal nonprofit institutions that that would be associated with projects, Bradley has talked about how five hundred one c three nonprofits are a good thing because they are supposed to serve the public interest. So this is kind of related to that idea. But I'm talking about projects that aren't necessarily uh, associated with any such entity. So um, the the idea for it, it, the only idea um, uh, for there to be a conflict of interest is, is if um, you know the, this developers are benefiting in some narrow uh, sense. Uh, from their connection to a particular commercial entity in a way that is that is sort of to the detriment of some larger community that they they owe some responsibility to. I, I, I think this is this is this is an idea that that is somewhere lurking in the background of of uh, especially controversial issues that come up in in free software and open source, but it's it's not it's certainly not a widely held idea. Now th now this is uh, where I, I bring up a historical example that is etched in my memory, and this is why I was uh, identified at I Identica that I was so nervous that uh, Mr. Bottomley and Mr. K H uh, and I suppose Mr. Corbett too are are in the room because uh, 
as I said, I worked on GPLv3 when I was at SFLC, and the low point in the history of that uh, work was a moment in September 2006 when a, some of the most prominent kernel developers, uh, some of which are in, some of whom are in this room, issued a statement um, basically condemning the uh, current draft of GPLv3. And this was a very well-reasoned uh, uh, document, I have to say. Uh, it, a lot of it is not so relevant today, but it was relevant at the time. Uh, the reason it occurred to me was that I was interested, I was thinking about this issue of conflict of interest. And, and one aspect of this document, which is very interesting to read, is that the kernel developers talked about how the FSF itself had some kind of um, larger duty to some community outside of itself. So, so in a way, they were saying, you know, the FSF, you have an obligation to all, the, the entire community of new project contributors, uh, maybe even something larger than that, the entire um, uh, Linux ecosystem that is partially dependent on the software that you have copyright control over, that you, ha you have a, a solemn trust, that, that's a phrase that was used in this document, to, to update GPLv2 in a way that was similar in spirit to the original version. Uh, so that itself is interesting because it kind of suggests that the FSF, the FSF is not really a, it's more of a, a kind of a, its relationship to the GNU project is one of you know, sort of an umbrella organization that that um, holds assets and trust for various projects, but but it's sort of it's related to this idea that that, that there is this um, larger ethical duty that goes beyond narrow interests. In the case of the FSF, I think the kernel developers might have said uh, it was narrow ideological interests. Uh, the one thing about this document that I continue to think about is the comment on the patent license provision that was in GPL3 at the time. So. There were various other aspects of the document that the kernel developers objected to, but but in, in with respect to the patent license, they spoke of the chilling effect on the necessary corporate input into our innovation stream, and they also spoke of concern about um, uh, commercial distributors of Linux who had significant patent portfolios. Now, this this is sort of disturbing because it, it's it's it can be read as saying we care most deeply about one segment of our ecosystem, the, the, the segment that is contributing a lot, uh, the, the, the corporate segment that happens to hold a lot of patents. We're, we're, we're mainly, we're not necessarily concerned about other contributors who may be actually threatened by uh, patents, maybe some of those same patents, maybe other patents, uh, or, or uh, you know, the larger uh, kernel using community. So I, I don't know if that's a correct way to read that, but that's how I, I think I read it at the time. And it's, and I still kind of, think of it that way. Uh, the, the, the great irony about this, and something this has not been talked about before this day, is that there was something called the four-company draft that existed at the time. The, um, uh, among the kernel developers who signed their names to this document were employees of Red Hat, uh, Intel, <coughs> Novell, uh, possibly IBM, I'm not sure about, about that, but th these were the four companies who wrote a draft of GPLv3. Um, basically, you know, it was sort of in secret because there wasn't a very transparent process around G the, the discussion committees that were helping the FSF draft GPLv3. And this four company draft, the purpose of it was mainly to push for a, um, lobby very heavily in favor of the patent po licensing policy that the FSF itself was championing. So uh, this shows that the, the employers of uh, many of these kernel developers were actually in favor of the patent license policy that they were criticizing in this document. 
And I, I don't know if there's necessarily an inconsistency there because you could argue that what they were, yeah, maybe their own employers were in favor of the FSF's approach, but they, there were other um, patent holding members of their ecosystem that, uh, that they nonetheless were concerned about. And that's a legitimate uh, position. What I think in the end this does show is that, you know, the, it shows that kernel developers were not controlled by their employers. So it actually shows that, you know, th this idea that in general projects are um, corruptible by these corporate interests is probably not true. Because it, here's a case where in a, you know, at worst you could say that the kernel developers were thinking they knew what their employers wanted, um, or maybe employers of their co-developers wanted, when that may not actually have been accurate at all. Uh, so that was the thing I worried about talking about. But anyway, so so in general, I think that that there's no big problem with commercial interests uh, in free software. You know, the, the Linux kernel is a is a great example actually of where we know a lot about that that uh, issue. We there's you know the 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 who writes Linux kernel white paper is published periodically, and we know a lot about. Um, what companies are contributing to the Linux kernel and what sorts of numbers and and the the general conclusion of those documents is always that you know it's actually a very diverse community um, the, the conclusion that, that that I've read and the, the versions that I've uh, read is that uh, you know it's such a diverse community that if any one of them dropped out the kernel would live on and would thrive and that's that's a very important um, important thing and it shows that that uh, far from it being a problem that there's this there are these multiple commercial interests uh, affecting the Linux kernel in some significant way. Uh, it's actually probably a strength that it is so diverse, at least. Um, so there is one uh, area where I think there is something problematic, and that's this issue of what I call uh, entanglement. So this is where um, you have a single corporate entity uh, that either really controls uh, almost everything about a community-facing project, a nominally community-facing project, or uh, seems to. And there are a number of um, uh, different objections to this. So the, the first one is sort of a, a business objection. Uh, and I, I call it the no magic pixie dust theory because of the, the famous uh, statement by Jamie Zawinski that uh, open source is not magic pixie dust. The um, so at Red Hat, you know, we believe very strongly as a, as a kind of matter of corporate ideology that, uh, that, that open source is a superior development model. But the only way this could possibly make sense is if um, we're talking about projects that are, that like the Linux kernel, are capable of attracting very diverse active developer and user communities. Otherwise, there, there's, I just don't understand what the argument, the business argument is for open source. It, it's, um, uh, you know, it, it, Experience also shows that um, when you have single entity control over a project, this tends to deter contributions. Um, there may be some actual counterexamples of this, but I think in general, this is this is certainly the general perception that people have. And um, in a situation like that, you know, what's the business case for open source? It's just it's either uh, companies are wasting their corporate assets if they thought they were going to get uh, advantages from the open source development model, or else it's just a, a form of it's just a gimmick. You know, it's maybe it's you know there's some kind of dual licensing business model being experimented with. Maybe it's just all for for show. And I think that that's, you know, if you believe in the open source development model uh, as I do, I think that it's that's an illegitimate uh, thing. Um, and another special problem here is that when you have very prominent companies doing this or very prominent projects, it has an effect of legitimizing that kind of 
particular model, uh, which I'm calling kind of the entanglement model, where there's centralized control by a particular pro uh, company. The, yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, I, I, I actually wrestle with that. I, I think, um, you know, I believe very much in free software. And therefore, I think, um, I believe that, that in at least a weak sense, there has to be some value with what Bradley would call you know, just throwing code over the wall. But, um, you know, I wonder Josh what. Okay. I mean, I think it's a commonly used I phrase. Use yeah. Yeah. I use it all the time now, too. I mean, I, I, I I don't, I think, I think it, it, it may be a waste of time. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the whole licensing system is, is, uh, the theory behind the licensing system is that anyone can take this code and can use it. So it has to be at least good in a weak sense. But that's something that I, I, I don't really know the answer to. I mean, I want to say that it has to be, um, a good thing in a kind of limited sense. But I, I, you know, I wonder about that. Well, well, that's that's right. I mean, that, that's why. I mean, in, in a sense, I, I'm questioning that that whole business argument. So, so Yeah, I mean that's that's right. Uh, so the uh, another argument is this idea of uh, it's sort of a mixed business and social argument that that this this kind of code is is a it's a form of property and property has to be secure if you can count you have to be able to count on it. Uh, it's it's a kind of property that is really dependent on the commitment of people to keeping it alive. Uh, and th so this actually in a way answers this this point that that um, licenses aren't necessarily good enough. You need to have communities that keep code alive and relevant. And and, and again, I kind of got this from the, the Linux kernel white papers, uh, you know, that, that, that in making the point that, you know, the Linux, you can always count on Linux kernel because it's not going to go away anytime soon because it's, you know, if Red Hat, Red Hat's responsible for 12% of contributions to the kernel, if Red Hat stops contributing to the kernel, uh, you know, that doesn't mean the Linux kernel is going to die. Linux kernel will pick up the slack and, and, uh, and will live on. You know, it, it, other other companies will contribute. So um, that, that's the point I was trying to make there. So so the, the, the what this suggests is that you know if you don't have that kind of diversity that you see in the kernel, you know the project's future is always going to be in doubt. So yes, maybe the, the code's always going to be there, but I, I question you know whether how much value that actually has. Uh, I think maybe a more important point is that if if you have um, this kind of centralized corporate control by a single vendor, that can mean that the licenses are things you just can't count on, and there's some legal danger there. Uh, you know, one—I mean—one form of this we see is kind of smaller companies that that experiment with these dual licensing business models. They tend to promote um, these illegitimate interpretations of the GPL, very aggressive interpretations. That—that uh, that really does a lot of damage to what those of us who kind of believe in a, a legitimate meaning of the GPL that should be kind of, you know, collectively agreed on. Then there's some of these companies have have large patent portfolios and maybe it's it's a dangerous thing for a single company to control a project and to have a large patent portfolio that reads on the code in that project. 
you know, it becomes, uh, some, some might justifiably consider that an unsafe situation. Uh, so there's an argument that, you know, maybe this doesn't matter. Uh, you know, first of all, commercial, commercializability is what open source is all about. This is not a non-commercial commons. Uh, and, you know, there's one, one variety is single corporate control. And so, you know, we just have lots of great open source business models, which is great. Uh, the, the, you know, I don't take that too seriously, but 10 minutes left. Okay. Uh, ah. so, so, so there's, um, two, two more important arguments, which is that, um, you, you know, you can always for, you know, and you can always, um, you know, find another project or start your own project, which is, is appealing. But I think, um, so I think this idea of forkability is, is overstated. Um, we assume that forks are rare, even though the licenses permit them, because the threat of a fork shapes project behavior. It has a kind of restraining function. That may be true, but I think it's also true that forking is often very hard. Um, and especially if it's a project that's, that has started out as being controlled by a single corporate entity. And this is actually the point that um, Richard Stallman and some others were making in their submission about the um, Oracle uh, Sun merger when they were concerned about MySQL. Uh, that it's actually can be difficult to, to fork a project. You have to, you know, there are collective action problems. Uh, the expertise is going to be with uh, developers that are still with that company. Uh, you may have multiple forks, which are going to each be kind of weak. Um, and then there's the threat of uh, legal reprisals, which I was kind of referring to before. Um, there are, so I know of companies that have threatened uh, uh, forking projects to sue them, you know, under you know, sometimes bogus theories, sometimes not bogus theories. Um, and also forks are considered wasteful activity. So uh, another thing uh, uh, is, you know, well, you can always go to another project uh, or find an alternative or you can start your own project. But this has the same objections. It can be hard to start a new project from scratch. Maybe there is no alternative project. So there's, in a way, there's kind of a monopolization idea that, that sometimes projects become important precisely because there really is no alternative to them. And they have a lot of power for that reason. Uh, so um, what could, so I think this is a problem. And um, there are a couple of ways to solve this. Uh, one is uh, this idea that um, I think in certain ways Bradley and Karen have indirectly or directly Championed, although they're kind of focusing on different aspects of it, which is that maybe the answer is for that pro it should be normative for products to associate with nonprofit organizations that aren't under the control of any particular uh, company. So, you know, I mentioned Bradley's view that 501c3s are a good thing because they act in the public interest. Uh, there was a kind of odd paper that Henrik Ingo uh, published last year that. Um, he he basically started out with the, this conclusion, and he kind of tried to come up with reasoning for it. But it basically, you know, one one aspect of his conclusions was that the single vendor model, which is what I've been talking about, is not in any company's best interest because it's going to limit the growth of the project, and you want the project to grow. And that that makes sense. I don't know if his 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 data or his reasoning makes that much sense, but but um, that's a, it's a related idea. Um, and Andy Updegro, who I assume is not in this room, uh, has actually come closest to um, kind of mentioning the, uh, the problem I've been referring to here, which is that you know, if you have a project that isn't associated with a foundation, which is what he's talking about, you know, foundations are good not only because they provide good governance, which is a, a term that he likes a lot, but, uh, but if, if they, there is no um, nonprofit entity and you're just dependent on a corporation as a, uh, for a sponsorship, a single corporation, I guess he should have said, uh, you're going to be in trouble if that company is acquired because your future is going to be in doubt. Uh, the problems with this view 
uh, is I think it's it's hard to set up nonprofit organizations. I just don't see um, I don't see a, on the at least in the area of this you know single corporate control. Uh, assume assume the corporations realize that this is a problem that that they shouldn't be kind of like exercising so much control over particular projects. I think the idea that they're going to set up a lot of nonprofit organizations is is unrealistic. Uh, I think it's much easier to kind of get them to think, oh, we can maybe move projects to the Apache Foundation. This is actually something that Red Hat has done with a couple of projects um, that it started up. Uh, it, it, they're, they're now Apache incubator projects. Uh, the other thing is that, um, you know, I, I, I think nonprofit organizations are, are just as corruptible as any any other kind of entity. And they can be corrupted by donors uh, and sponsors. Very often, nonprofit organizations have significant corporate sponsors. Uh, so maybe it's better to have um, the transparency of control by a corporation than the the kind of sham of an independent organization that is in secret sort of controlled by some you know important donor. Uh, you can also have um, false accusations of control. And the, the, the example that came to my mind was Mark Shuttleworth, who, who in recent blog posts has talked a lot about how GNOME is basically controlled by um, by Red Hat, which is which is for a lot of reasons not true. But I understand why he he, he can get away with, with sort of saying that. Uh, and yet, the, and yet, GNOME has an independent foundation. Um, so, you know, why if it may be actually beneficial just to have the appearance of independence, but I don't know if that's that's a good enough reason. But I I just want to say I basically do like this idea of uh, having nonprofit organizations. Five minutes left. Uh, so another thing that can be done, and I think this is actually my last point, is that corporations, uh, even if they don't set up or, or shift or offload projects to nonprofit entities, they can adopt policies that um, can have the effect of relinquishing this control once they're convinced that this kind of control is a bad thing. Or it can be a bad thing. So the you know problem is corporations have, in a way, it almost isn't their fault. They have this natural tendency to want to control things. I mean, Karen, I was just talking to Karen before this talk about the subject she talked she talked about that that lawyers for corporations just have this natural tendency to want to kind of get as much as they can, and this is just how how corporations operate. In a way, we just have to kind of understand that. Um, you can, I think, I really do believe that you can um, teach corporations that. It is a bad thing for the reasons I've tried to mention that, that to have so much control over a project because you're not you're not going to get the benefits from the open source development model that which is what they should really be caring about, uh, you know. And, and maybe the answer to that is you know maybe they don't want the open source development model. Maybe they should just be working on proprietary software. And, and I don't know if that's a net benefit to society or not. I I don't know. Uh, so one thing that this is where I think Red Hat, I think, is 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 learning some lessons because Red Hat has come close in many ways to kind of having because Red Hat starts up a lot of projects, it it usually initially has a lot of control over them, and uh, what saves Red Hat from a lot of the problems I've been talking about is one. First of all, this this internal culture, which is not very well known outside of Red Hat, but Red Hat has this internal culture of delegation to engineers. Engineers get a lot of independence uh, and decision-making power. It's not written into employment agreements. It's not written down anywhere. It's just part of the culture of the company. And I think it's probably a, a bit different from a lot of technology companies in that respect. I, I, I assume. I've never worked at any other technology company, so I don't know that. But but I've kind of assumed that, that, that many other companies have, you know, the legal department really breathing down the engineer's back and, and so forth. 
uh, Red Hat, you know, they really free up engineers to do a lot of the things they want to do. And they, and, you know, as long as there's some kind of business case for it, you know, they can just kind of run with that and, and they're given a lot of independence. And that, that limits the real control that Red Hat in a corporate sense has over the project, even though, you know, that isn't sort of visible to the world. Uh, three minutes. Okay. So, uh, the other thing that can be done, this is the kind of thing that someone like I can help with is, that sometimes these control, um, this control is implemented through legal policies. And lawyers can tr implement new legal policies that dismantle those instruments of control. I gave a talk at LinuxCon last summer about um, contributor policies where I talked about this, that the Red Hat has moved away from these very um, experiments with kind of very controlling kind of contributor policies that generally had the effect of just making people not want to contribute to projects. And we've been um, making it, you know, removing all sorts of barriers to contribution that I guess, you know, people didn't think about in the past, but, but uh, except maybe engineers. Uh, but I think that the, the lawyers, the legal department that, you know, in, in the past would sort of require these policies, not thinking about the bad effects they would have on contributions into the project. Uh, these these are in the process of being changed and dismantled and questioned, and I think uh, we're already seeing some some good effects from that. This has mainly occurred in the area of, of contributor policies, but I think there are other aspects of it as well. Uh, and and it, it, part of it is also the realization that that even from a corporation's narrow self-interest, the, the most successful open source projects are the ones that are likely to survive the sponsor, and that that's a very difficult thing for a corporation to to get to an understanding of. Once they do, once they see how that's connected for the business case for open source, then it's easier for them to think about, you know, either uh, spinning off a project to some independent organization, truly independent organization, you know, like moving Red Hat, moving Delta Cloud to the Apache Foundation, or um, implementing policies that aren't really, you know, formal independence, but, but are designed to kind of remove um, corporate control to a, a sort of maximum extent. And I think that is my last slide. So, oh, one minute. One minute for questions. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no. Uh, JBoss is JBoss is so so JBoss is largely um, uh, it's mostly developed by Red Hat employees. It's it's kind of a weird case because they do get um, a very it's a very specialized kind of project, and they get a, they get outside interest. Uh, and there were so in the case of JBoss, there were barriers to contribution that we've been trying to to kind of get rid of. But nonetheless, there there were um, outside contributors who did contribute, but they tend to end up being hired by Red Hat as developers. So what happens is, it, in a way, JBoss looks worse than it actually is. This is kind of true of a lot of things that Red Hat does. I I, I think JBoss looks like it's it's sort of more like Red Hat controlled and community community unfriendly than it really is. It's just that the, there's so few developers out there who are interested in contributing to those kinds of projects. They end up being very, you know, th th this is just the feeder base into the, into, uh, new employee hires. So, um, I think it's a problem. There are some JBoss projects that are actually much better than others at attracting outside contributors, like the Drools project, for example. 
Uh, I haven't figured, I think a lot of it actually has to do with um, licensing choice. So so historically, J, most JBoss projects use the LGPL. And this was because of a decision by Mark Flory that uh, the, re, the rationale is sort of lost to historical memory. But but um, I'm not sure that that was the correct uh, license choice for that kind of ecosystem. I think that the kind of developers who would be naturally interested in contributing to JBoss projects probably are looking for uh, more permissive licenses, probably, you know, Apache kind of foundation style licenses. So, um, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but that's something I definitely think about a lot. How can we get more contributors to JBoss projects? And I think, I think that even at the highest levels of engineering in Red Hat, that's, it's recognized that we, we want to get outside contributors. That's, we believe in this model. We just don't, we don't fully know why we're not always successful at it. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I really love listening to Fontana speak. It feels like a, like a fireside chat. Well, he wouldn't put his coffee. It was very strange because, uh, as you'll hear on our outtake, Richard insisted that I give him his coffee, which I'd moved uh, so that he could speak, so he could get set up to speak. And then he insisted I give it back to him. The problem was the podium was completely slanted, which is why I moved the coffee in the first place. And he had to hold it the whole time, which was But I weird. think it added to the overall atmosphere of like collegiate discussion. It was driving me nuts. I wanted to go <sighs> up and take it from him because it was obvious that he couldn't sit it down anywhere because that was the whole reason I moved it. It didn't look awkward from a, the audience perspective. I was on the other side, though. Yeah. It awkward on the other side because I was on the coffee side. That's funny. So, um, so a, a couple of things that Richard said uh, I agreed with. I, I, I felt like drawing attention to the corporate connections and motives are important. Uh, and I don't think people do that enough. See, I disagree. I mean, I think that people do often draw attention to corporate motives and participation. I mean, there are a lot of projects that when they enact formal governance, they um, they avoid having more than one or, or sometimes more than two, depending on what the project is, representation from um, from any particular company. I don't know. I mean, I think it's something that's discussed a lot of times. And I think sometimes there's even... Um, you know, the opposite reaction where there's assumption that because there's corporate participation that, that it's, it's problematic when I think it isn't always. I mean, we want to have projects where companies are actively participating. Uh, we just want to make sure that, that projects aren't controlled by those companies such that software being developed in a nonprofit that should be developed in a nonprofit way is being developed, you know, for some corporate interest only. Well, I, I think the analogy that he put forward, he admitted this analogy was not really a perfect way of looking at it, but this idea of commissioning art, and and actually, I like the analogy, because historically, if you look at many of the portraits from the Renaissance and so forth, you know, before basically before the invention of cameras, all these, all this art that was done of really rich Italian people during the Renaissance, basically is casting them in the most favorable light, and this idea of Microsoft commissioning a a, a portrait of Balmer and the same sort of thing. And, and the question is, when there is this corporate philanthropy, which is important, right? I mean, it's a, we wouldn't have the Renaissance well, but, art movement without corporate, or without you know, merchant state or whatever philanthropy. But the question is, is what level of philanthropy uh, or what level of influence from those philanthropically giving is appropriate and, and how does it affect the outcome? But it's not entirely analogous is the problem, right? Like commissioning 
commissioning a portrait of the person who's paying you to commission the art is a little bit different than um, creating software that has utility and is, is utility that others can use. Well, it's true, I mean, but it, if you look at look at the you know, how much of the art of the Renaissance is, if it's not portraits of rich people, it's 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 uh, religious themes because of the the level of control the Catholic Church had and level of money and power the Catholic Church had. So, yeah, no, that's true. I think it and does. It, I think it does analogize. Somewhat. And there, well, it's somewhat it does, but it's a, but not wholly. And I think everyone would agree that we have whole bodies of art because they were sponsored by. Uh, by, from where the money was, and that there were artists that you know, I'm sure there were there were other artists that were also good that we don't really you know that we don't see because their works weren't as preserved. Mm. So you know, I mean, I, I, there, you can analogize on a number of different levels, I think, but I don't think that anyone would downplay the value of you know of the money from the church to art, nor or, or you know, rich patrons in supporting those um, those artists whose works we now have. So you know, I, I mean. I mean, in that that regard, it's it, it is somewhat analogous, but because software is a little bit different than art, uh, I mean, it's it, it's really not a one for one correlation. Yeah, and 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 Fontana admitted that, but but I think this 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 idea of of some companies try to overplay their involvement, and we've seen that in a number of cases, and some some companies try to downplay, which actually he didn't talk as much about, but there actually are a lot of companies that try to pretend they don't really give as much code as they do. IBM's a great example. The, the, the IBM puts a lot of code into Linux, but tries to actually downplay how, how much they're participating more than they try to play it up, which is, which is interesting because they're, they're trying to sort of manipulate the level to which they're being recognized for their work. Uh, and I think that's common with, with most corporate contributions to free software. Yeah, I mean, I think it does go both ways. I mean, I, I also know that, 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 you know, financially, some companies want to make much of their donations and, you know, when they're giving straight money and not code, and sometimes um, donors don't want anyone to know that they've donated to a certain projects. Well, and I like that better. And this is something that Conservancy does, so I know it better than I know other models. But but Conservancy does collect a lot of donations from companies that ultimately funds code, and the level of both transparency and arm's lengthness that is from so so the when the project puts together a proposal, it's their proposal, and they take donations, many of which come from companies, to fund that proposal. But they're working on what they thought of. Well, it's not is, really being influenced by the companies. I like that better yeah. than the company employee or somebody being well, but, hired by but a company. But Fontana would actually disagree with you there and would probably draw a corruption from the money coming from... No, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think the nonprofit model is a way in which we can mitigate the opportunity for mm -hmm. corruption because if we have a, a, you know, a nonprofit in place that is acting um, as the law tells it to act and the, the law requires it to act then you do have that layer so you have to you, you you know there are protections against it being being made corrupt now he points out that donors um you know that that funders and directors can potentially corrupt a nonprofit too and that's completely true but the yeah. law you know legislate you know the law the law requires otherwise whereas in the for-profit setting you know the, the shareholders can basically you know do what they want to maximize their profit in the non-profit setting that's actually different so if you want to disobey the law you can disobey the law that's true uh, across the board and a, a whole range of things in society yeah and and he admitted later on identica that 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 it might make sense for nonprofits to be normative. He thinks there's problems there. I mean, and Richard's ultimately a pessimist, right? So, I mean, he's going to look at every possible situation and say, well, it has all these problems and it doesn't solve the issues. And, and it's true that nonprofits can be corrupt. I and mean, there's at least somebody watching the watchers. 
right? In, in a nonprofit setting where I mean, you we have... wouldn't have a scandal every... I mean, it feels like every month we have a scandal that I read about in the Times of some nonprofit that was slushing money around here or there. But they, you know, but they're they're caught and they're, you know, it's it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's held up as an example of what you can't, you know, what you shouldn't do and what will happen if you are caught. Right. And you know, there was a, to cheat and all, yeah, all there was across just a story, life. There know? was just a story on 60 Minutes about this as well, about a, about a, a nonprofit that actually Obama had donated to that had... Um, that had various issues because some of the stories weren't true and some of the things were related to just promoting the book about the nonprofit and that sort of thing. So this does happen, but I think the nonprofits in free software have a lot more scrutiny because people basically spend all their time looking at at stuff about these nonprofits. I, I think there is a lot more scrutiny. I don't know in free that software. people really spend all their time. I think you spend all your time looking at what what nonprofits are doing. I think a lot of nonprofits are sort of you know coasting by without too much scrutiny but they have to you know to keep their nonprofit status they have to file a report with the irs and they have to sign on that line and they have to basically say that it's true and correct and, and be, someone is on the hook for saying that there there isn't corruption because the irs asks questions on a regular basis about what the nonprofit is doing with its money and what it's doing with its resources and activities yeah and so i think i think the corporate i mean the court i think fontana's main point that i agree with is the level of, of corporate connection. I was actually um, I, I noted this when I uh, when I was uh, live denting the talk that he didn't mention uh, Ben Bigdikian's book, the the media monopoly, because he talks about this level of control and he actually used uh, GE and NBC as an example of of will NBC report badly about GE and yeah they disclose it but are they actually, I mean, basically the editing, the avoiding the story, and it's sort of like avoiding the patch. You know, it's the same in the free software world. Will will Fedora take a patch that's bad for Red Hat, right, for some business reason? Uh, probably not, right? And so and so I think that's sort of what he's pointing to. Yeah, is but on the other hand, luckily what we do is all out in the open, and so, you know, if people see that, they can, you know, publicly criticize, and that usually brings companies in line. I mean, Well, it hasn't worked with Canonical anyway. I mean, I think Canonical is still... Basically, basically, their answer to you're not contributing enough and you're coasting on the benefits of these programs was we're going to write all our own stuff from scratch, which it's their right to do, of course, but it didn't yeah. really actually change the behavior. Well, but this is different than the example of not accepting a patch because it's bad for the company. Well, true, but it's it's sort of the other side. It's the downplay. It's the overplay instead of downplay. Right, 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 right. right, right. Yeah, no, I think so. I think we all knew who you were talking about earlier. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I, I think I think it's I think. The problem is we don't have enough watchdogs. I mean, I spend a lot of time being a watchdog. I get I get lambasted for being hard on Canonical. It's funny because I'm hard on Red Hat when it's appropriate as well. Uh, but the Canonical people are just such a marching in step with with the benevolent dictator, or the, in their view, benevolent dictator. I mean, it's because because Canonical and Ubuntu are structured as a dictatorship. I mean, they say that that we want this to be a dictatorship. Shuttleworth is a dictator, and we support him as a dictator. Because of that, it's sort of this march in step, and they come in droves when I criticize. But I, I generally criticize all sorts of companies. I wish there were more people doing that, going to these companies and sort of criticizing and saying their behavior is reasonable when it's reasonable. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's really important. I mean, I think it is part of the free software culture to have, you know, discussions where we call people out on things that they do wrong. I mean, I, I, I think it is part of our culture. Whether people do it all the time is not necessarily the case. But, you know, I would encourage everyone to stay you know, on the lookout for not just for-profits, but also non-profits. Yeah. Just stay involved and keep watching. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I I wish it were true of the culture. I think the culture has a tendency to... Because we spent all these years with uh, you can't make money with free software, 
there's basically a, a and I used to have this tendency to forgive anybody who's on the edges. It was great that Fontana said in his talk, proprietary license, proprietary relicensing is not a legitimate activity. I used to call it a, as RMS did, a barely legitimate activity because, and I really felt inclined to have to support it because there's so many people out there saying you can't make money in free software. So when you see somebody making money, you, you almost want to back justify it. You want to find a way to say, oh, it's okay because they're making money with free software. And I think that the tendency in our community is actually to go right. that well, way. I guess say, that any case, business model is okay because they're making money. And we always want to say yeah. you can make money with free software. Yeah. Well, I guess in that case, they're not necessarily making money with free software. Well, and that's the question, right? Because it's always, it's often on the edges. It's yeah. often experimenting on the edges. As Simon Phipps says, they're game, they, they work to game the system. I mean, this is, again, why I'm so supportive of, of – obviously, I'm supportive of what conservatives is doing. But I like this idea of – of using a nonprofit to collect philanthropy. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of to, to well, go our back listeners to, know that this is our, like you, me and you, this is our mantra. <laughs> yeah, well, I, well the, 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 it goes back to this sort of philanthropy model that Fontana is talking about because it, because it's sort of like the symphony where you, you have a nonprofit that's collecting donations, some of them corporate donations and, and the symphony doesn't pick its, it's music based on synergy. So, wanting, sometimes like it that. does. Sometimes funders. I didn't know that. <laughs> Well, no, it's like an, it's it's in any nonprofit. I mean, you can have you may have a hundred activities that you would like to do, but if you get funding for five, you're much more likely to do those five than the other ninety-five. It doesn't mean that you know if you wanted to if you were going to play a piece by Mahler, you know, it doesn't matter if you play one piece over the other. If the funder particularly likes the other, you might choose that piece, and it's not necessarily corruption. It's just that you know you could have easily have chosen either piece. It's just that if 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 one of those pieces is going to get funding, you'll do that piece. Now there are instances where that could be corruption, you know, where 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 maybe those pieces aren't equal, you know, mm. but um, but where they are, you know, and it's funded, that's what you do. I have I totally have a Godwin's law uh, uh, troll like I can do a good way to wrap Cause, up because right, Hitler funded funded various music to fit with the goals of the state. There you go, Godwin's Law. Godwin's Law. Well, I think, I think that speaks for itself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we, well, well, we'll try. We're going to ask the other uh, speakers uh, slowly if they'll uh, agree. Yeah, it was and a good hopefully, track. Hopefully we'll be able to get more of the talks. We can't guarantee it because uh, we haven't asked all the speakers yet, but we're slowly each episode asking those speakers. And uh, if we get more speakers to agree, uh, we'll have more of the talks from the, uh, the legal and licensing track at Linux Collaboration Summit. Stay tuned. Free as in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of HalfBakedMedia.com. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. Free as in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Please provide any feedback to Ogcast at faif.us. Okay, we are ready to get started. Um, wait, I'll be saying this to a lot. Wait, wait, wait. Where's my coffee? Oh, my apologies, sir. The coffee is here. You sure that's the right one? That's the right one because I have tea. Okay. <laughs>